friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today I'm on the phone with Professor Oswald Schmitz, is the Osler Professor of Population and Community Ecology in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale University. His books include Resolving Ecosystem Complexity, published by Princeton. And I'm holding in my hands his latest book called The New Ecology, Rethinking a Science for the Anthropocene. So, Professor Arts, I want to begin by taking you back to this small forest and meadow in central Ontario where I feel you began to see the intertwinement, the intertwinement of nature and humans. Yes, uh, it, it happened when I was growing up. I was, I was part of a generation where my mother in the, in, in the summer would say, go out and play, go out and discover. You know, it was safe to go out on our own as children back then. And um, uh, we wandered into the woods and meadows and um, it, was, it was quite fun and intoxicating and, and really it inspired me to look at nature and, and try, and, uh, try and understand it. It was, it was magical. So you went back many years later, or fairly recently, and you noticed big changes. Yeah, it's it's the kind of changes that uh, we've seen throughout uh, North America when small towns become developed with housing and the small outlying farms the, the, that that uh, make up sort of these wild spaces uh, get get sold and get developed into uh, subdivisions and housing areas. And, and uh, that was the sad thing for me is, you know, the housing was developed and, and there were also, um, you know, changes to the landscape because uh, different animals came in to the, to the landscape than the ones I was used to. And they also transformed the environment, um, including a beaver that ended up flooding some of the meadows that, that uh, I used to go to and look at uh, butterflies and grasshoppers and um, the beavers had fundamentally changed that landscape um, also. So I'll jump in and say uh, when I was reading that I thought well in a sense the beavers are doing the same thing as us humans are doing which is adapting nature to both our need and I don't know about the beavers, but need and greed. In what way are we different? I, I think 
right now the way we're different, and and that's why I juxtapose you know the urban you know the development with the beaver. They're both uh, doing what we call ecosystem engineering. That is changing the ecosystem, changing the landscape, and and um, changing how the land functions. The beavers certainly do that to to end up having access to food resources that they need to thrive, and uh, in the course of doing that, they actually create different kinds of habitats that attract other species. As humans, what we tend to do is largely in urban environments pave over nature we we transform it in you know just like beavers do in very dramatic ways but we don't create habitat structures in the way that encourage a lot of other species to um, come back to the land um, we, we we end up building it just to suit our own needs and uh, make it harder for animals and, and plants to come and live live in these spaces. And so what we find sometimes is that the diversity of animal and plant species that we see in urban areas is sometimes much lower than, than what a beaver would create in terms of habitat. I see. There's, there is a different consciousness. There, there is, yes, yes. So the new ecology... You are a scientist, and it's uh, sort of, as people, we are starting, or a certain level of people starting to realize that the Descartian, the Descartian ideas are not so exact, and yeah. everything is connected. Now, yes. you are taking a very deep look at that in the natural environment. Would you speak about why you call it the new ecology? The new ecology, I, I titled that mainly for the broader public. What I wanted to do was write a book that a broader public could understand. The, the science that I described, if, if, if other ecologists were to read it, they wouldn't say that that's particularly new. It's new for the broader public because what we as scientists are really trying to do is change the way we, we um, represent our science for society. In the past, what we've done, so for example, if, if, if humans built the environment, built uh, urban spaces that reduced the diversity of species living there, as scientists, we would record that and, and, and maybe say, look, this is not good. There's a loss of species from what was normally there. Uh, humans are, are destroying nature. But, but that isn't necessarily the message that we should be completely uh, saying. What, what I'm trying to do with the book is also convey to people that the science gives us know-how to do things better. So maybe we can use scientific principles to design urban spaces that also encourage species to be part of it. And, and we have the know-how. And what I want to do in the book is, is actually convey that excitement and that know-how to a broader public to make them appreciate that science isn't always about complaining and identifying problems. It's, it's ecological science. The new way of representing ecological science is also to tell the public we can do better. We can, we can design things better and, and um, improve the welfare of both people and nature at the same time. It doesn't always have to be in conflict. So that you tell us that we can coexist in a mutually useful way with other species that uh, yes. that we need each other. Yes, yes, and and what.
what ecologists call that are ecosystem services. So basically species, as they go about their business of living, they eat, they reproduce, um, they're connected. With, with their connections, they cycle nutrients, they purify water, they, they absorb carbon from the atmosphere and store it on the earth so that we can reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and uh, um, atmospheric buildup of, of greenhouse gases. So there are lots of services that species provide to humans that right now we don't have to really necessarily pay for. You know, it's a free service in a sense because nature is providing that to us. And if we, if, if we don't take advantage of that or if we don't think about our coexistence with these species, economically it can be quite costly for us because we have to invent technologies that might uh, substitute for species. But we, you know, as I say in the book, we really don't yet have the exact know-how to do that well and, and replace species and, and their evolved roles and, and functions in, in nature. So, you know, what the book calls for a little more is also some humility and, and respect for nature. Let's respect the species. Let's, res- you know, celebrate what they can do for us um, um, and, and not necessarily exclusively rely on, on technology. But what that also means is we have to have ultimate respect for those species and, and consider them part of our broader community, that we live with them, coexist with them, and accept them and, and celebrate them okay. as, as part of our life, too. Well, for a long time uh, in the human value system, it's been a fight over the out-there nature So I would love it if you would tell us a story of human and uh, nature collaboration, how one species helps another to to live and pass on their DNA. Well, you know, mostly what what goes on is we could, we could think of things, for example, in um, a boreal forest ecosystem. That would be in northern Canada. Um, in those systems, you have wolves that live with moose that are their prey, and the moose feed on trees in those boreal forests. And um, if uh, moose become highly abundant, they can actually be quite damaging to the forest. And... Um, what happens is you get a reduction in the amount of carbon that's taken up from the atmosphere. You also get a reduction in nutrient cycling because, um, you know, there isn't enough plant biomass to, to be cycled through the ecological system. But having wolves present and the wolves controlling the moose abundances, you end up getting positive effects that actually keep the forest intact, keep the forest available for all other species such as beaver and, and, and caribou. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is that one species interacting with another and reducing how it impacts the forest can actually be beneficial to other species that also rely on the forest. And so there are all of these indirect ways that one species could be beneficial to many other species. And, and in the course of allowing those interactions to take place, those species also benefit humankind because, as I said earlier, 
these forest ecosystems can take up carbon out of the atmosphere and help us fight global warming by taking the carbon into the forest and storing it there in the boreal forest. And so um, if we live alongside of some of these species, instead of saying, oh, wolves are bad, we should shoot wolves, we should actually maybe celebrate wolves because of the beneficial effect they have for humankind also. And so what, you know, in terms of ensuring that their DNA gets uh, um, passed on, we should really respect the fact that, that the wolves are part of a bigger system. They're some, part of something bigger, and we are also part of that same bigger entity that we call ecosystems or nature, and um, really ensure that all species are allowed to thrive and, and um, fulfill their biological natures. It, it, it really does get down to now sort of an ethical view entwining ecology or ecological science with an ethics of, you know, being stewards of the environment and not just simply exploiters of the environment. So if you will, let's go into your classroom and perhaps you can you can share with us what seems to reach your students and really help them understand that as humans we are intimate parts of nature. That I that I do that. Um, the lesson that I usually like to use is the one that I introduce the book with, and that is, you know, the pristine nature in, in Bristol Bay. Um, it's one of the last wilderness areas on this planet Earth, and um, we want to, you know, ultimately we revere all of the wild animals that live there. Um, it's also a pristine place. Um, for many unthreatened stocks of salmon, and it's an important Aboriginal fishery up there. Um, a lot of um, Native Americans and Canadians use those those regions for, um, their, you know, to, to to fulfill their traditional livelihoods, and we and students appreciate that because it becomes an environmental justice issue. That there are people who have lived on the landscape for. You know, thousands of years, and who are we to take away their livelihoods? But then I show them how they indirectly are contributing to doing that because of technology again. All of the students in the class love to have a cell phone, and then usually what I do is I hold up a cell phone and I say, how many love this technology and want to get the latest? And invariably, everybody puts up their hand, giggling a little bit. And I say, what if I told you that this phone connects you to Bristol Bay? And then they sort of look at me puzzled and sort of scratch my head. And then I get them to think about what's inside the phone, right? The metals that make the phone run. And, and a lot of those metals are really specific to the kind of communications technology because they are the kinds of metals that, that can conduct electricity very easily and they can also... Um, Resist heat up, heating up, you know, uh, as as you're getting a lot of um, energy flowing through these these instruments, and so um, I point out that you know because of their demand for the technology, it connects them to this remote part of the world, and and in and the way it does is you have to mine in these areas. These are locations on the planet where there are also really valuable minerals, and so if you demand technology you actually have to dig up the minerals, these rare minerals, from places like Bristol Bay that are pristine nature and destroy nature so that you can have the latest technology. And that, that 
sort of alarms them, but it also then gets them to take a global perspective that it isn't just, you know, going to the local cell phone store and buying a cell phone and good enough. It, 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 it gives them pause and gets them to think about, okay, when I buy this cell phone, who on this planet do I connect with? And do I jeopardize the livelihood of other people? What's the justice issue there? So it comes down to ethics again. And once you sort of, you know, connect people through, you know, their wants and their needs to nature, um, I think they, they get a better perspective and a more sober perspective about, you know, what it is that they are doing to this planet. Well, I have to say, it really worked for me when I read about all these minerals and all these elements from the periodic table of energy and thinking yeah. of, of getting a new computer. And I have to say that yeah, it, has exactly. tempered, it has tempered my desire. I really, yeah. Well, but, but the thing is, you know, and this is again where... The, where Ecological principles teach us that we, you know, the re- the idea of recycling is an age-old idea in in um, um, environmentalism, and and usually we think about recycling paper or cans and bottles, but we should really think about recycling our technology, our electronic technology, and doing a better job of that. And and um, you know what what ecology teaches us there is that. You know, let's not necessarily give up on our technology, but let's be much more intelligent about how we how we manufacture the technology, how we design it. So, for example, in nature, a lot of the materials that are recycled, that is the woody biomass, the leaves, the animal tissues that are recycled and um, decomposed, and then the nutrients are released to, um, to grow plants again, you know, the materials are readily recyclable. They, they can be recycled within small periods of time. Um, and, and it's really important because that is what drives the functionality of natural ecosystems. But when we build our technology, we, we actually make it durable, right? We try to make it as durable as possible, and that makes it resistant to recycling. So what ecology teaches us is that maybe when we design our materials, we should actually have recycling in mind. And if we do that and make them readily recyclable, we can actually lessen our impact on the environment because those rare minerals are bound up in our cell phones, in our computers. Those are really the mines that we should be looking for, for um, future minerals, and, and we can lessen our impact on the environment. But it, it again, means imply, applying ecological principles to our manufacturing system and to our urban environments. And that's really what's what's new about this new ecology. Well, yes, and, uh, and one way for you, I suppose, to, to track uh, the movement of uh, and the intertwinement of, of species across the, our little world, one way for you to track that is through computer, and even uh, on the on the miniature level through the through the microscope, exactly. So you track. You've been able. You've been able to track our, our our that everything is dependent on everything through these discoveries. Yes, but but you know when when you when you say 
you know, everything's dependent on everything or everything's connected to everything. Yeah. Some people think that's a little glib, you know, that or, little, or um, yeah. uninformative. Yeah. But, but, but I think the other lesson that you, that the book teaches is that, yes, everything's connected to everything else, but, but if we think about all those connections and think about the system as a whole, then we can also, just because things are complex doesn't mean they're necessarily complicated, and we can reason through. So I've, I've read reviews of my book, and, and some of the readers have despaired that all this complexity makes them, gives them a sense of hopelessness, which well, ironically... Wait, wait, let, me, find... let me stop you. Can yeah. you, can you talk, tell us the difference between complexity and complication or okay what what do you mean so so complexity what that means is when when things are very deeply connected with everything else okay there are a lot of interrelationships so when something happens in one part of the world or one part of the ecosystem those effects um basically blow up or or um, are realized throughout the entire system right right okay. it isn't just uh, a predator like a wolf eating a moose by the predator the wolf eating the moose those effects of that are realized in the trees in the microbes in the soil conditions in the water so so those effects really pass through many 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 pathways and influence everybody in the system so you know, it, it multiplies through the system, and that's what we mean by the complexity of the system. But but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that so it's complicated, complicated that we can't figure out how that's happening, right? And and manage that, and and so that's what I, that's how I try to distinguish complexity and complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So some people who've read your book thought it was complicated, well, as opposed they, to complex. The complexity, they despaired that it w things were so complex that we would never be able to figure things out and we would never really be able to solve problems because of, you know, everything tied to everything else. And, and you know, it was, it was interesting to see those comments because I was, you know, I, I really tried to have a hopeful message that, you know, let's not despair, let's, let's understand and appreciate and respect this complexity we can we have the scientific know-how to figure things out but on the on the other hand it also sort of asks us to be a little more humble right and 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 not just go whole hog and assume that we can have full control over nature or we can extract all the materials we need to support our technological well-being let's actually think about again how connected we are to nature, to other species, and, and think about things in a little more ethical perspective. You know, even though we have the science, even though we have the technological know-how, does not necessarily suggest that we should ignore our relationships to these species that are also important to us. Well, you, you quote uh, Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold was is credited uh, as the... Uh, the initiator of deep uh, ecology and yeah. uh, you qu quote some words from him and uh, part of that is alone in a world of wounds yes wounds yes and i think a lot of a lot of people who 
are perhaps a little more aware of being um, totally from nature, with nature, feel feel very wounded, feel very feel very feel a lot of despair about not being able to um, do anything other than recycle. So perhaps you can give us some um, you can give us some prescriptions for our own health and the health of the planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, this this idea of wounds. That's that's again the way the old ecology that you know I contrast in the book sort of thought about things. It's it's the ecologists went out, they studied, saw changes, they saw harm relative to mm-hmm. pristine nature, and um, we decried those wounds, right? Um, but but that doesn't help society solve, you know, heal the wounds. And so, first of all, you know, I, 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 I try to promote the idea that, um, on the flip side of, of what Aldo talks about in that quote is, is being doctors that heal the wounds also. And so what we need to do more as scientists, especially as ecologists, is offer society solutions. Getting back to the technology, one solution is it's not so much recycling, but we're we're consumers, right? Consumers have a lot of clout because they buy products, they boycott products. And so one of the things that we ought to do as consumers is insist that companies like Samsung or Apple or Sony or whatever um, be much better at recycling their metals and not, you know, doing the mining. We can't blame the miners for the damages because it's really our demand for technology that ultimately drives that. So we have to look at ourselves and not point the finger at other people who are immediately causing the damage. We are indirectly causing that damage, and so we think we need to think about how how we consume products. And and you know we don't necessarily need a new cell phone every six months. You know, and 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 that kind of demand really you know leads to the kinds of environmental damages that we um, we create on this planet. So maybe we need to again change how we think about technology in our life and and how we use technology in our life. In urban environments, for example, we can also make a difference in, in engaging urban planning. Instead of having, you know, cutting all the trees down and paving paradise, as Joni Mitchell would say, mm-hmm. um, maybe we should insist that development actually think smart and, and use um, ecological principles to design habitable environments. Um, thinking just about treed environments, you know, making sure that in cities there are lots of trees. These trees have huge benefits, not just simply aesthetic. You know, they, they will scrub pollutants out of the air. They also give people a sense of uh, well-being. Um, studies have shown that people who live in urban areas that have lots of street trees feel healthier than people who don't who live in neighborhoods that don't have a lot of trees and that translates also into healthful behavior they they tend to eat better you know they eat more grains and and vegetables rather than meat and um, have much more healthy diets they go out for walks more and and so it, it promotes a healthy livelihood that ultimately is also sort of a doctor of the environment in the sense that, you know, you as an individual are much more healthy and both mentally and physically than, than people who don't have 
access to those kinds of environments. And so even though you don't necessarily have to pay directly for the health benefits, um, your emotional state is one in which, you know, you, you improve your health. And so, you know, this goes beyond recycling, but it, it, it requires people to be actively engaged in, in their local politics and, and try and encourage city planners and city politicians to actually change how they plan out and develop urban environments um, and, and create much more habitable environments. And, but, but ultimately, it also means that as a citizenry, we need to be much more understanding of the science and, and you know, how science can contribute to actually improving our livelihoods it's, and not ignoring it. You know, science doesn't have to get in the way of, of uh, progress. Science can actually, especially environmental science, can actually contribute greatly to progress. You know, one of my frustrations with the current administration is, you know, the repealing of a lot of the environmental right. laws so that we can, you know, supposedly businesses can, can um, be more profitable. They're not so constrained by environmental laws that limit what they, what they can pollute or whatever. But the frustration for me is that, yes, it may release, you know, companies from obligations, but what about future generations? What about our grandchildren who would love to have the same opportunity as we do? And, and so if we despoil the environment because we're reducing our environmental regulations, that, that diminishes the opportunity for future generations because they have to deal with the aftermath or the pollutants or they're constrained where they can actually live and, and uh, grow food and get their drinking water. That's a justice issue. It's not fair to future generations. And so to me, laws actually are in place not just to constrain current economics, but also to actually create future opportunity for future generations and ensure that they have the same opportunity that we have. I think that's, that's something that we should pass on to future generations. Well, I, I think you're very kind to call it frustration. Uh, I call it uh, <laughs> something terrible. <laughs> Something terrible, but actually, I'm I'm understanding that uh, what you do in your classes at Yale is you teach people who might become activists because they have an understanding of how uh, I keep using that word, but I love it. How intertwined we are. Again, yes, I want this, these activists to, to enhance people's understanding of nature-human entwinement, but I also want them to understand it in a way where they can offer solutions. You know, we really, really need leaders now to give society solutions and, and offer them opportunity rather than saying, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just sort of go headlong and, and, you know, go about changing the planet in, in, in ways that, that society thinks we need to go and call it progress. I, I think we, we do have to have safeguards in place. So the science also shows us, you know, how much change um, nature can withstand before it actually starts to uh, disintegrate or collapse, um, which we call resilience. 
nature is quite resilient, but it, it has its limits too. And and so when we propose solutions, we also need to be mindful and respectful of nature's limitations and um, propose solutions in a way that, that also doesn't harm um, what nature does for us and future generations also. So, but, but I do... I do want to inspire students to say, yes, we can do better, we can have a healthful environment, but also have societal progress, which, which we always want to, we, you know, every, every generation wants to make a better life for the future generations. And, and to me, being thoughtful stewards about making sure that the environment stays intact and, and that ecological functionality is still there and thinking of creative new ways where the urban environment can can um, actually ensure functionality. I think those are all excellent ways of going forward to make sure future generations benefit from what we, we pass on to them. Um, I will ask you, please, would you speak about resilience and limitation of the planet's life? span, if you will. Yes. So, ultimately, all species have limited capacities to function. You know, we, we as human beings, our physiology, our ability to live in certain environments to tolerate heat or tolerate cold or drought is constrained by, you know, our genetic makeup, this, who we are as, as species and as individuals and all species, you know, share limitations in their capacities to cope with different environments. But different species are adapted to live in different conditions, right? That's why we see different species in deserts than we see in tropical environments. But they are each each of those species are adapted to cope with the environment that they have evolved in. They do have some ability to adjust their physiology or their growth or, or um, uh, abilities to cope, which we call plasticity. You know, they, they mm-hmm. um, can tolerate a range of environmental conditions and really not necessarily become compromised by it. And, and that's, that gets at the whole idea of resilience, that is, even if, let's say, global warming is going to increase the planet temperature, you know, by one degree or whatever, there are many species that can cope with those those changes, and that imparts resilience into ecological systems, right? Because as the species come together in communities and interact with each other and adjust to each other because of this plasticity, they can tolerate you know, a certain amount of disturbance or um, environmental change. But eventually they'll hit a wall. We, we, we can't push the system in, in, in one direction infinitely because then the, the, the genetic capacity constrains what they can do. And so the resilience that I think we, we should enlist right now um, is one in which, you know, Certainly, we're going to see some climate warming. We need to we need to stop releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, right now, species can, to some extent, still cope with what we've, you know, sort of imposed on them right now in terms of climate warming. 
What it does, I say, is buys us a little bit of time now so if we can get our act together and change you know, our energy technology, it buys us a little time to change how we generate electricity or how we drive vehicles or how we um, fuel vehicles, um, then, you know, there's a bit of resilience in those systems um, to allow us some time to make the adjustment. But we're living on borrowed time now. And if we don't get our act in gear and change how we can do things, we will push those species to the wall and then inevitably there will be collapse. So again, part of the optimism that I have is, you know, the fact that a lot of species, many species still have the capacity to cope with, you know, the prevailing conditions that we're imposing on them now. But we can't just assume that'll happen forever. We need to be respectful of that and use the time we have available to change our ways in, in terms of energy generation. I want to ask you, I mean, it's not about your book, uh, but uh, how do you think that applies to migrating populations, for instance, people who've been living uh, close to the desert, who now are are um, forced to live in, uh, in cold countries I, uh, or, you know, different cultures, um, climate-wise? Is it fair for us to drive expensive vehicles um, that are polluting the environment when people, like you say, in these marginal desert areas, their agriculture goes kaput because um, there isn't enough water anymore to irrigate their crops and so they have to migrate? You know, is that fair that they have to leave their home? We wouldn't want to leave our home. Is it fair to make them leave their home because we're driving fossil fuel burning vehicles or we're generating electricity with coal-fired plants? You know, it connects us all. Or, for example, this summer I've experienced um, the wildfires out west. You know, they're, they're, you know in, in Canada, British Columbia is burning up all over the place. Alberta doesn't have wildfires, yet the smoke from those fires because of the wind directions is all ending up in in, in um, uh, Alberta and the people in Alberta have respiratory problems because of that you know is that fair you know these big looming changes that we're causing on the environment has justice issues for all sorts of people living in different parts of the world and so you know we really have to ask ourselves because of these connections you know is it right for us who enjoy a very good livelihood to cause harm and suffering to other people on this planet through changes in their, their environments um, um, simply to support our livelihoods. It's not fair. And that's, that's really the point of Earth environmental stewardship is to think about other people mediated through the environment that they live in and how we change the environment that they would love to have um, and what they've become accustomed to in terms of their livelihoods. I think this is a beautiful place to stop with uh, with this question you're asking, which is a very new ecology question. Mm-hmm. And so I want to thank you very much for writing your book. I have to say it's easy to read and it's been thought-provoking for me. So thank you for that and thank you for being with us today.
Thank you very much for having me. And it, the book has been a labor of love, and, and I'm glad that, you know, the way you look at it is exactly what I had intended, is to be thought-provoking, but also make it readable for a broad audience. Um, so thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk with you about it. Good. 